The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So last week, we began a teaching series that we are calling The True Story of the Whole World. What we said last week is that we all operate with some notion as to who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, what the source of our conflict is, and the hope of some kind of ending. We said that we all function with some kind of answer to these questions. What's the meaning of our lives? What's the goal of human history? Why am I here instead of not here? And what am I supposed to do in the meantime? What do I live for? What am I supposed to live for in my day-to-day? We said that the modern world teaches us that we are to write our own story, but the reality is that's just too big a burden to bear. So instead, we want to understand ourselves within the framework of the Bible's story, what we're calling the true story of the whole world. And so where did we begin last week? In Genesis chapter 1, in a garden, more specifically at a garden wedding, where we saw the beautiful difference in all of creation pinnacling in the creation of man and woman. And we said this was the plot thread, the plot thread that runs through all of it, that God intends to be present with his people in his place. God intends to be present with his people in his place. And we said that the way this story intersects with our story is in three ways, that you are made in God's image, that you are, not just the special people, not just the beautiful people, not just the important people, but you are, you are made in God's image. We said Going along with that, that means that your life and your work are good. That God made a good world and our lives are full of meaning. And then finally, we said that you were made for God. Like Eve was made for Adam, you were made to know, enjoy, and glorify God forever. And I would guess that for those of us who were here last Sunday... You listen to all of that, and it's like, man, all of that sounds so good, and it's like, that's such a beautiful picture, the story of Genesis 1, but there's this huge elephant in the room when we think about being made in God's image, and we think about being made for God, and how rich and full and meaningful our lives are. Things aren't always that way, at least not always that way, right? Our experience in the world is, to put it mildly, mixed. Uh, in, in the early 90s, there was a movie that came out, a film called Grand Canyon. Full disclosure, never seen it, just read an author who talked about it. But he said what took place in this movie was released in, I think, 1991. It was one of those like ensemble movies that were really popular in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, in this film, in this particular scene... There's a character who's driving through these kind of long, deserted roads. His car starts to break down, and it ultimately breaks down in a really rough neighborhood. And Danny Glover, who plays this kind of genial, um, I know him as the guy from Angels in the Outfield. I don't know if, maybe, or I think Lethal Weapon. But Danny Glover appears, and he is this kind of friendly, kindly, old uh, tow truck driver. And he pulls up onto the scene, and he, he kind of arrives just in time to save this dude who's broken down in a rough neighborhood. And apparently he grabs the, the, the leader of the ruffians, and he pulls him aside, and he says, to, and, and I think this is really poignant, he says, hey, you know, this isn't the way that things are supposed to be. Like this, this kind of commitment that you guys have to beating up this guy and to stealing from this guy and to, and to sort of taking apart his car and selling it for pieces, this is not the way that the world is supposed to be. This is not the way that the, the story was supposed to unfold. I read about this particular scene in a book about sin, and the title of the book is called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. 
And what the author identifies or kind of points to is that in our gut, in our bones, at our most fundamental level, we have a sense of loss, a sense of fallenness. We look around the world and we say, this is not the way that the world was supposed to operate. And I wonder if this morning you can relate with that. Be it in minor frustrations, be it in major tragedies, you just know. You don't know how you know, you just know. This is not the way that the world is supposed to be. So what went wrong? How does the Christian story speak to this? What does the Bible have to say about the fact that the world isn't the way that it's supposed to be? What we'll see in chapter 3 of Genesis is how things fall apart. And we'll summarize the key elements of the story with a couple of key words. Cast out conflict, and crush. It says three key words. We'll just assume cast out is one word, okay? Cast out, conflict, and crush. We'll walk through Genesis 3 for a second, and then we'll think about how this story confronts us. Let's look again at Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It begins. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now we remember what Genesis 1 and 2 tell us, that God is present with his people in his place, and it's in accordance with God's design. And so we see life with God is this kind of place of glorious wholeness and harmony. It's a, it's a, it's a world of abundance. It's, it's rich. It's full of potential. God tells Adam and Eve to tend the garden and ultimately expand the boundaries of the garden. But in chapter 2, verse 17, we're given a prohibition, one single prohibition. God grants that Adam and Eve eat of every tree of the garden except for the one tree, chapter 2, verse 17. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God puts this parameter in place as a way to preserve wholeness in life. If you disobey, death would be ultimately introduced into the picture. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, enter stage left, the serpent. Now later on, the Bible identifies this creature as Satan or as the devil or as the enemy. It's obvious it's evil. For, for whatever mystery kind of surrounds the serpent, it's obvious that it's evil and it wants to undo God's good world. And it has humanity and its crosshairs. Again, there's a lot of mystery otherwise. What's its backstory? How does it get here? We're not told. But what we do know is that it's intent on disrupting God's good world. What about the tree? Again, chapter 217, we're told, don't eat of the knowledge of the tree, of the, of, of the tree, of the, that tree. Don't eat of that tree. We're not told details about that either. We don't know what kind of fruit it is. Is it an apple, a pear, a pomegranate? We don't know. What does the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil mean? Again, it's not entirely clear. But what we do know is that this is a symbol of God's rule in the midst of his people, his righteous rule over humanity. And again, we do know that the serpent wants to undo God's world with a targeted attack on God's people and God's place. So the serpent, being more crafty than any other beast of the field, makes his way into the garden, and he says to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now consider the the nature and the progression of this temptation. First, what does the serpent do when he sort of confronts Eve? The first thing he does is he actually casts doubt on God's goodness. In verse 1, look again. He says, "Did 
Did God actually say? You can see the, like, incredulity here. He says, did God actually say you're not supposed to eat of this tree? Like, would a good God, who's, who, who's, who's kind of casting himself as this benevolent, generous, kind, good God who's giving you all these things, would a good God really do that? I know he's giving you this garden and he's giving you everything you could imagine or need and it's all good and it's from a, the hand of a generous God, but if God was good, would he really tell you not to eat of that tree? Or is God withholding? Or is God uh, 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 sort of intent on keeping you under his thumb like some kind of taskmaster? In verse 3, it seems like this seed of doubt has taken root. You see that Eve... Here's this temptation, and she responds, not with the command that she was actually given, but with the command plus a little bit of something. She says, God did tell us not to eat of this tree, and he said, don't touch it or you'll die, which is interesting because God only said, don't eat of it. He didn't say anything about touching it. It seems that the doubt has taken root ever so slightly, and maybe God is a harsh taskmaster. Maybe God isn't generous and kind. And then what happens? The doubt graduates from doubt of God's goodness and his word to outright denial. Look at verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, listen to this. The serpent says, you know why God doesn't want you to eat of that tree? Because you'd be his rival. You would become like God. And, and, and God can't stomach the thought of having a rival because he's so petty and he's so bent on his own self. You would be his rival. The one author called this the de-godding of God. It's the rejecting of God's goodness. And it's rejecting his authority over us in favor of self-rule. What the serpent offers is, a, is, a, is the, the, the opportunity to define your own good and do your own thing, to be wise apart from God, to be independent from God. And the way he begins with calling into question whether or not God is actually good. Now, I would just submit to us for a second, just to kind of reflect on, I mean, isn't this the fundamental human problem? To assume two things. That God isn't actually good, and that God doesn't actually have my good in mind for me. And second, that God isn't actually the one who has the authority to rule over me. I mean, that, that seems to me to be sort of the essence of the human problem. These two assumptions, that God isn't good and his ways are oppressive and flattening and awful and miserable, and that if anybody knows what's best for me, it's actually me, that I deserve the status of God over my own life. I mean, sometimes, you know, we kind of chafe at the prohibition that's given in chapter 2, verse 17. We say, why would God put that tree there in the first place? I mean, why would God ever think that that was a good idea? And, of course, there is a place to think through and ask that question. But I do wonder if asking that question still demonstrates that the, the serpent, that he, he still has his fangs in us. The fact that we can't shake frustration at the notion that God sets the parameters, that God defines right and wrong, and that life is found in submission to God. Yet, I, I wonder if our inability to receive that is actually telling what if it's actually the same sin of Adam and Eve? I think part of the brilliance of this story is it really gets to the essence of the human temptation. To be discontent and imaging God instead wanting to be God. And so what happens? The serpent makes this offer. He casts God's goodness in doubt. He denies the doctrine of God's judgment, in, in essence, denying the reality that God has a just rule over our life. 
So Adam and Eve, what happens? Do they, do they take a bite of the, uh, the fruit? And is there this moment of incredible enlightenment, a, a, a grand triumphant super saiyan mode that they enter into? Does Adam and Eve, do they become like God? Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, you could almost see her eyes widening and her pupils dilating. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what's the result? They are granted knowledge, but it's the knowledge and awareness that something is wrong with me. They're granted the awareness and knowledge that they have committed a grievous evil, and the result is pain. It says that the eyes of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's the introduction of shame. Think of how chapter 2 ended. It says that they were naked and unashamed. Then they eat of the tree, and the result is that they are now realizing that they're naked, and they're left ashamed of themselves. Have you ever experienced a deep awareness of shame? This deep sense that something's wrong with me? A deep sense that I have done something wrong and that it's created a mess and you're deeply aware of the pain that that's created. I think about probably, you know, honestly, almost daily. I have a friend in high school. He was my best friend whose relationship meant the world to me. And that relationship ended because I did him wrong. Point blank. He was my best friend. I did him wrong. And the, the result was that relationship terminated. And it was, it was perfectly appropriate, and it was the right decision for him to do. He ended that relationship, that friendship with me. And I think of, this was almost 20 years ago, and I think about this almost daily. Because I, I wonder, what could have been? You know, had I chosen differently? Had I treated him differently? Had I, had, I, had I done something differently? What could that relationship have been? But instead, cast out. That relationship is broken. And I am ashamed with the awareness of what I did wrong to create this loss of this relationship. That's because, that, that becomes the, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord of the garden walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, this glorious garden of delight and nearness to God, it has been disrupted by guilt, sin, and shame. God calls out to the man, where are you? You know, it's hard not to be struck by the weight of what's been lost in this story. They're made for God, and now they flee from God. Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Of course, God knows the answers to these questions, right? He's not, he's not um, uh, uh, you know, uh, ignorant to, the, to, to what's taking place here. Rather, what God is doing is inviting the man into confession and awareness of what he's done. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What happened? God asked, did you disobey? And Adam's response is yes, but it's yes plus a few details. Yes, I ate of the tree, but the woman, she did it. The woman that you gave me, she did it. And so what Adam is sort of doing here is he's, one, casting the blame on the woman. It's, it's not on me. My hands are 
clean of this situation. The woman is the one who actually fell. She's the one who took the fruit, who's the one who was tempted. And you know what? You're the one who gave the woman to me. So in reality, I, both of you are implicated in this mess. Again, God is withholding is the temptation that's earlier. And here, Adam subtly suggests that God gives faulty and bad gifts. That God turns to the woman and her response, what does she say? The serpent deceived me and I ate. What we see here is the tragedy of what's been lost. This place of harmony and delight and nearness to God. His presence, his people, his place, wholeness and goodness has now become a place of loss, shame, and blame shifting. Skip ahead to verse 22 to see how all of this ends. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the fruit of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned away every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What happens ultimately? It's our first key word. Humanity is cast out. Humanity is exiled from God's presence and from God's place. Now, of course, in, in one sense, God is always present, and all places are his, and all people are his. But it's obvious to see what the author of Genesis has in mind is that something harmonious and something right, with a capital R, has been lost. Adam and Eve, and with them us, the entire human race, has been exiled. And the result? Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We were built to be with God and his place as his people, and now we've been cast out. Death has entered the picture. Physical death, of course, but something even worse, a kind of spiritual death, a life for God that has now been disrupted. We were built to run on God, if you will. Now we've chosen to be cut off and we're banished. And again, things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Now, there's so much more that could be said about this story, these events, and the effects of the fall. But we can at least observe these two things real quick. What makes this story so tragic is, is we have forfeited life with God. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. What Paul tells us is that through Adam and Eve's rebellion, through Adam's passivity and Eve's choice to listen to the serpent, the result is death has now entered into the equation. This world of harmony and delight and goodness has now been disrupted through the evil that humanity has introduced. Again, we have been exiled with our first parents. The world is not the same. Everything is now subject to impermanence. A land of wholeness and fullness is now loss. I was texting with a friend yesterday uh, who was showing me some snippets of a book that he was reading. The book is about death. And the author observed the tragic reality, listen to this, that everyone loses everything they love. That's now life east of Eden. Having been cast out from God's good garden, from his presence, the reality is now that everyone loses everything they love. What thing do you love doesn't have an expiration date? What, what person that you love isn't one day destined for the grave? The tragic reality, excuse me, east of Eden is that everything now is impermanent. Death has now entered into the equation. We have lost life with God. But there's a second tragedy here. We remember that God created us to bear his image God created us to 
to, to, to be his uh, representatives in the world. But now, image bearers are in need of being restored. Last week, again, we talked about the miraculous, unique dignity of, of, of humanity and our status in creation. We are unlike anything else. We are these incredible beings with rational minds and souls and the ability to have dominion over God's good world. But what do we do with it now? A couple weeks ago, I was struck, I was, I was reading about the invention of steam engines, as one does. And it was just incredible to think about. I mean, the way a steam engine runs is, if you're an engineer here, give me the benefit of the doubt. What I understand is that there's a vacuum in a tube, and you heat up water enough that it creates steam, and the steam forces out the, you know, nature hates a vacuum, it forces the vacuum out, and it's this repeated cycle, and it creates movement, and it creates steam-powered power, right? It's incredible. It's incredible that anybody in their free time just decided or sort of figured that out, that they made that work. And so we have trains now that run on steam. And you think about, if you think about the history of the United States, how essential trains were to the development of our nation. It's incredible. I mean, so much wealth was generated and opportunities were generated because of the invention of the steam engine and the train. I'll tell you what, ladybugs didn't come up with the steam engine, right? Chimpanzees didn't come up with the steam engine. It was humans created in God's image who came up with the steam engine as a part of our dominion and creation mandate to create and take God's good world and make great things from it. But you know what else we did with the steam engine? is we shipped people to concentration camps in them and tortured and mutilated and experimented on them. Image bearers are now in need of being restored. Those powers and our ability to be creative, which seem infinite, are now deployed for evil ends. East of Eden, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So what can be done? Verse 14. God responds to the human rebellion first with curses, promising conflict. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it's not entirely clear the meaning of verse 14. Does this mean the serpent had wings or legs? Maybe. Although the thought of that is just horrifying. I've told you how I feel about serpents. Some have said that this is probably best read as a kind of ancient trash talk, like an assurance of the serpent's judgment. You will eat dust forever, kind of idea. But in verse 15, there's a promise of conflict. There will be enmity, conflict, between the offspring of the woman and the serpent. The seed of the, the woman, the seed of the man, humans, and the seed of the serpent will wage war. This is understood in the Bible to be representative. Not that humans will forever be afraid of snakes and snakes afraid of humans, but that there's now conflict between God's people and the serpent's people, you might say. You actually see this borne out in the very next chapter, in the story of Cain and Abel, if you're familiar. Uh, as the story of Genesis progresses, it kinda, there's kind of this question mark that's lingering over the story. Who is the seed that is promised to the woman? And in the very next chapter, we're told about two brothers that are born, Cain and Abel, both born to Adam and Eve. And how does that story work itself out? We see enmity between a righteous man, Abel, and Cain, resulting in Cain ultimately taking the life of Abel. And so we're seeing this very promise play itself out. We'll return to this here in a second. To the woman, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
Conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now we're, we're seeing conflict between the woman and her womb. Childbearing, part of the feminine calling, is now covered with the shadow of death, pain, and loss. Her body revolting against her. Endometriosis and epidurals east of Eden. What's more, the relationship between man and woman is now a battle. What was formerly free and whole and life-giving and beautiful is now marred with conflict. The woman wants to rule over the man, and the man wants to respond by exercising domineering sort of power over her. The beautiful difference of the garden is now a war zone. Verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. To the man, conflict with the ground is now his reality. There is now pain and work. The ground once freely yielded its produce. It was once abundant. Now scarcity and Excel spreadsheets are a part of the reality of work this side of the fall. Why won't those tomato plants ever grow, we ask ourselves. The ground is cursed with thorns and thistles. The ground itself now wages war against humanity. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Again to the man, by the sweat of your brow you'll eat, and ultimately to dust you will return. We think about how God gathered up the dust to create the man. The result is that the man will return to the dust. Death is now a part of the equation. Harmony is now war. We are now cursed with conflict, cursed with death. We've been cast out of the garden, and now our lives are marred with conflict in every domain. This is life in the fallen world. Now, I would guess that as you've been listening to this, these scriptures and to this teaching, there's a big question that's kind of lurking in the back of your mind. Why is it that God would allow this to take place to begin with? How does the snake get into the garden? It's like, God, surely you knew that it was going to go this way. Why did you even let the snake enter? Why did you even create a universe where the snake was a possibility? Why is evil a thing that could take place? God, surely you could have created a different kind of universe altogether where none of these things were an option. Why is the snake a thing? Why is evil a thing? Why are the curses a thing? Why, God, have you created the world to function in this way? And of course, that's a really big question, and it's deserving of a really big answer, but here's the short answer for us. You ready? We don't know. We don't know. But here's what we do know, and this is absolutely essential. What Genesis 3, though it doesn't give us an answer to those big questions, it does tell us that we have the tools to call evil, evil. We can look at evil and we can say, without a shadow of a doubt, the world is not supposed to be that way. The Christian story has the explanatory power for why the world isn't as it should be. And I would actually submit to you that if you were to reject the Bible story, if you were to reject the notion of the supernatural, if you were to conclude that the world is just material, well, you don't actually have any resources to call evil, evil. It's just facts. If there was no intention or, or design from which we have fallen, there's no way that we can point to the evil of this world and say it's evil. It just has to be. It just is. The brute facts of the world. Childhood cancer isn't evil. It just is. 
Sometimes chemical reactions go haywire. Sometimes cells eat one another. Sometimes it happens to kids. Kids, you throw up your hands and you say, it just is what it is. There's no value that you can ascribe to it to call it evil. And so even though you experience it as evil, even though in your guts you know that it's not supposed to be this way, unfortunately, you just got to suck it up and learn to deal. The Christian story actually gives us the ability, though we can't describe the, the, the mystery of its origins, it, give us, it gives us the ability to point at evil and say, yeah, it is not supposed to be this way. It is wrong. You know what else we know from this story? Evil is evil, and God promises to address it. Look again at verse 15. To the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What does he promise to the serpent? Enmity here, right? Conflict between the people of the serpent and the people of the woman. But there's a promise of bruising. The head of the serpent and the heel of the son of Eve will be bruised. Now, the word bruise here comes from the fact that the KJV interprets it as bruise. But the Hebrew word, which is only used a few times in the Old Testament, actually means something more like crush. When we hear bruise, we think about accidentally cutting the corner too close by the kitchen counter and getting a mild contusion on our thigh. But this word actually carries with it so much more violence than just bruising. It's a sense of crushing. It's a promise of conflict, a promise of mutual wounding, and a promise, listen, of triumph, a wound to the heel, but a death blow to the snake. This is our third key word, crush. God promises to crush the serpent. Once for all completion, once for all crushing its head. Which means, whatever the reasons for evil, whatever the reasons for allowing the serpent into the garden, God intends to kill it. God purposes to be present with his people in his place, and nothing will stop it. He will triumph over the forces of darkness which violated that. And God promises from the opening chapters to crush the serpent and put an end to evil. Which I find really compelling. So we can look at the evil of the world. And though we say, yeah, I I can't give you good reasons. There's there's maybe some things we can kind of piece together that God has a plan and that God is glorified through it somehow. But But what I know for certain is that evil is evil and that God will end it. There's coming a day when all evil will be eradicated. And so as we're reading Genesis 3, we're making our way through our Bible, we think about this promise of what God's going to do. And so we think, okay, there's coming a seed of Eve who's going to crush the serpent. I'm going to turn to Genesis chapter 4, and he's going to arrive, right? He's going he's to arrive. He's going to deliver the, the garden back to its former glory and then some. Then we turn to Genesis 4, and what do we read? The story of Cain and Abel. The story of the war between the, son of the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent at war with one another. Conflict on full display. Harmony between people shattered, where brother murders brother. In fact, what you could summarize, especially Genesis 4 through 11, the way you could summarize it is it's just going from bad to worse, from fallen to fallener, essentially. Chapter 4, you have the story of Cain and Abel committing violence against one another. In chapter 6 through 8, you have the story of Noah and the flood. And how does the story of the flood open with God regretting that he created humanity because of the way that evil has escalated? God grieves humanity that is made. 
He sends a flood as judgment on human evil. Yet even still, God's faithfulness to preserve his people remains. It's interesting that even in the story of Noah, the germ of human evil remains. Uh, We're told that Noah, whose name means rest, there's kind of a hope that Noah's going to be the seed who ultimately delivers on these promises from Genesis chapter 3. But what do we discover about Noah? Well, he's just as jacked up and complicit in the great mess as everybody else. And then things go from bad to worse, even more, climaxing really in chapter 11 with the story of the Tower of Babel, the story of human arrogance kind of on full display, where they say, we don't want to bear God's image, we, we, we don't want to uh, make God's name great, we want to make a name for ourselves. And they conspire to build a tower to reach the heavens. It's a picture of dominion run amok, a picture of human pride. God responds with judgment. So if things get so bad and the story gets so ugly and it's so fallen, we're left wondering, aching for the answer. Who is the promised seed? When will he come? Who is the son of Eve? Who is the the one human that isn't susceptible to the serpent? Who is the one that's going to crush the serpent for us? Who is the one that can triumph finally over death? Who can restore us? Who can heal the darkened human heart? Who can come and return us to life with God, life that we were made for? A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? Who could this possibly be? As the story progresses, this kind of question becomes, pun intended, the seed of the rest of the story. Who is going to be the serpent crusher? How will God win? I hear this morning, and I would assume that We have people who are here all over the map. I look around and I see folks who are members here at Ridgewood. I see folks who are here because you were invited by a friend. Maybe you were really experienced with church in the Bible. Maybe you've been around, but you wouldn't consider yourself especially religious or devout. But what I would say to each of us is that this story intersects with each of our stories, regardless of who we are, in two ways. This is the first way this story intersects with our story. First, You are a victim and you are a perpetrator. You are a victim and you're a perpetrator. Each of us feels in our bones that the world isn't as it should be, right? I mean, each of us have stories that we could share of having fallen victim to a fallen world, of disease and sickness and death and abuse and chaos and evil being committed against us. Stories fill this room. You are opposed by the serpent. Evil is real. Evil is dark. The enemy prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. There are nasty people intent on doing nasty things in the world, and we need to be able to call evil, evil, to name the evil that they're committing. But listen, the Christian story confronts you too. We all know there's evil in the world, and we have no problem calling cancer and death and Nazis evil. But me? Not me. I mean, if you knew the whole story, you would understand why I do the things that I do. This is exactly where the Christian story confronts us. This is where the Christian story, hear me, confronts you. You are like our first parents. You are fallen. You do and have done evil. Listen to what the other biblical authors say, reflecting on these truths and even reflecting on the events of their own lives. This comes from King David in Psalm 51. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
David, after committing a grievous sin that we'll talk about later in this series, is so overwhelmed with the awareness of his sin, he says, I was conceived in sin. I was born with this in my chest. Consider what Paul says in Romans 3, verses 22 and 23. He says, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. All people have sinned and all people are fallen. And then consider the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that this side of the fall, the human heart is desperately sick. We are fallen. And I can't help but think about how counter this is to our culture's story. I mean, our culture tells us that our heart is who we are. And it's our life work. More than that, it is our duty to follow our hearts wherever they lead us. But the Christian message says, listen, as incredible as you are, your heart is sick. I was recently reading about a novel called The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. I've not, I've not read it. I was reading about it. This is not a Christian book, not even a little bit. But the book is sort of cliche in the way that the story unfolds. It's a story of a young man who's discovering himself. And it's kind of like eye roll because all stories are now of a story of a young person discovering themselves. That's the story that we all know. It's the last story that we have to tell. And it tells us after the death of his mother... The, the, the young man begins exploring, kind of searching for himself high and low, following his heart everywhere it takes him. And then the book ends with the, with the young man offering a reflection on his journey. There's a moment in the book where there's a hole poked in the modern story. And listen to this. I have a quote on the screen for us. It sounds remarkably Christ-like. This is the young man speaking, kind of narrating his own journey. He says, it's a curiously uniform message accepted from high to low. When in doubt, what to do? How do, we, uh, how, how do we know what's right for us? Every shrink, every career counselor, every Disney princess knows the answer. Be yourself. Follow your heart. Only here's what I really, really want someone to explain to me. What if one happens to be possessed of a heart that can't be trusted? What if the heart, for its own unfathomable reasons, leads one willfully in a cloud of unspeakable radiance away from health? And instead, straight towards a beautiful flare of ruin, self-immolation, disaster. If your deepest self is singing and coaxing you straight toward the bonfire, is it better to run away? What if indeed? What if one was possessed of a heart that hated its owner? I actually think that once our guard is down, once we deal honestly with what we know to be true of ourselves, we know something is fundamentally wrong with us. I think we actually know that we're complicit in the great mess of things. That we are in possession of hearts that can't be trusted. And so what's the solution? How do we respond to this? Are we just to bear the guilt that we bear? The white noise of guilt and anxiety about the wrong that I've done and the good that I've left undone? Is the goal to try and muster up more good stuff to crowd out the noise, crowd out the noise of the bad stuff that keeps me awake at night? Are we to just self-medicate? To never sit alone with our thoughts and always go to sleep with Parks and Rec on because if I have a moment to myself, I will lose my mind. Is it just to plug our ears, to shout louder and louder and louder and louder about how great and excellent we are? I'll tell you, here's the answer that the Bible holds out for you. You ready? Forgiveness. Can you imagine that? 
forgiveness. A divine word of mercy from a God who sees you exactly as you are and pronounces not guilty. With the same authority with which he declares, let there be light, he says over his people, forgiven. So the second way that this story intersects with us is simply this. God is merciful. What sets the Christian story apart? We are broken. We are not the way we're supposed to be. Yet, grace. For you. For you. For me. Grace, mercy. God sees and yet God says to us, forgiven. And the answer as to who ultimately crushes the head of the serpent, spoiler alert, is Jesus, son of Eve, son of Mary. The author of Hebrews says it like this, that Jesus, through death, destroys the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And he delivers all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. He was made like us in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus crushes the snake. He saves his people. He dies for our sin. He's raised to new life. And he pronounces a word of forgiveness over us that we do not earn, that we do not deserve, but he gives nonetheless. God is merciful. How do we receive this forgiveness? The the scriptures give us this this mind-blowing answer. Is it to do enough good deeds to garner his attention? He says, no. We just respond with trust. Belief, faith. This morning I would ask, could you believe? I I know that you know that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, but could you believe that Jesus is the one who makes things right and he begins with you by pronouncing a word of mercy and forgiveness over you and then committing by his spirit to, to working out his goodness in our lives, to working out obedience and faith and hope and love and righteousness in us. To me, that is incredibly, incredibly compelling and powerful and hopeful and life-giving. The thing that we can all agree on is that things are a mess. What the Christian story has to offer us is Christ came to redeem us. Isn't that good news? In the next few moments, we'll take some time to just pause and respond and sort of consider what's been said this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the thing that I would urge you to think about what does it mean that Christ crushes the serpent for you? What does it mean that God is merciful and that he offers a word of forgiveness? What does it mean that the scripture confronts you with your fallenness? I'm sure that the person who invited you here this morning would love to talk about any of those things. Uh, I'll also be available in the lobby after worship is over to talk any bit more. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, what I would encourage you to consider and to think on anew is the significance and the, the, the power of what it means that Christ has forgiven us. That he looks on us in our sin and he pronounces not guilty by his own blood. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you in response to your kindness to us. And we pray that through an awareness of our sin, that we would be all the more astounded at your grace and kindness to us. And we pray as we consider this grand story and we think about this 
story in contrast to the other stories that we encounter in the world. We thank you for the freedom and relief that this brings. We pray that we would be a people who are never cold to this, who are always stirred towards hope when we read the words of Genesis 3.15, the promise of the serpent crusher. Lord Jesus, would you, in response to the grace and mercy that you've shown us, would you make our church a place of grace and mercy towards one another, recognizing that we are, we are all leveled by the same truth, that, that each of us need forgiveness of you. I do pray for our friends here who are not yet believers. I pray that your spirit will work in their heart, that your word would take root, and they would see their need for a Savior. God, I pray all these things in your name. Amen.